Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. How many have their tree up yet? God bless you, the rest of you. We don't typically do an altar call, but we'll make an exception today. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus 15, Exodus, sorry, Exodus 16. Last week in Exodus 15, we had a song of commendation, praise to the Lord, the song of Moses, and it turned quickly to a stream of complaints. God had delivered some people saying in praise, but then they needed water and their complaint hotline started picking up. Exodus 16, we'll pick up this story and see what happens next. But I was going to ask you if, you, if you could go through the Old Testament and pick a passage that spoke about giving or that you could use as an illustration for how Christians ought to give. What text would you go to? The whole Old Testament is available to you. You can instruct the church, you ought to give and keep your money. This is how you should handle finances. Here's a good example for you. You would go where? Let me tell you where you probably wouldn't go. You probably want to go to Exodus 16 and 17. But as we saw in our scripture reading today, that's exactly where Paul went. We'll get to that in a little bit. You can see there's some connections, and you may read through a story, and then you may look at Paul, and you're going to go back and read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and you're going, uh-oh, uh-oh. And you're like, Pastor, are you bring this up just because, you know, the budget, and we're handing the budget out, and no, we bring it up because where are we at today? Exodus 16 and 17. And so we just walk through the text in providence. The Lord sometimes just puts things in our path and sometimes clicks his finger. Right there. Seems like what he's doing. So as we get into Exodus 16 and 17, it's not going to be just on giving. There are three stories that are in Exodus 16 and 17. Three major stories. In each of these three stories, you can find a problem, a solution, and a reminder. We don't have PowerPoint up here for some reason. The Bible app's not working today. So you're just going to have to use your Bible and pay attention. Old school. There's a problem, a solution, and a reminder. It starts in Exodus 16, 1. The people have left the shore of the Red Sea. They've packed up their choir robes. They're done singing. The ladies are done with their, their festive dance. Somebody uh, dropped off for me this week a tambourine. I did not bring it up because I don't think that would be worshipful for me to do that. I was not allowed to dance as a child or a teenager, so my dancing now when I attend looks somewhere in between a turkey trot and a seizure. So it's just better off if we just leave that to other people. But they put their choir robes away. We're done. We're done singing. We're now into the complaining mode. The Lord has moved them on. The Lord has moved them on, and we see them moving on. And look at verse number 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The hotline, the complaint hotline is still open. Now what's the problem? The Lord's freed them from slavery to himself. He's given them to himself to them. He's taken out the entire Egyptian army. He allowed them to walk through walls of water on dry land. He's done some amazing things. He's allowed them to leave Egypt loaded with gold. He fulfilled promises over 400 years old. What are we complaining about now? Look at verse number 3. 
the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by meat pots. Now, gents, I don't know how you take that text, but it is a delightful phrase to sit by meat pots. Meat. I don't know what this looks like, but it's probably, the law hasn't been given yet, so I'm assuming bacon's in there, but something's in there that's good. They got meat pots. And they ate bread to the full. We got biscuits. We got bread. We, we got food, food for the plenty. For you brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So here we have our problem. Food. We need food. Now it's a quick, quick advice for you. One of my old professors say, whenever you are, use the HALT method, H-A-L-T, you know how to spell HALT, H-A-L-T, when you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired. It's not the time to try to make good decisions. It's usually temptations on the door. When you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, right? You see the Snickers commercials. Are you hungry? People are just, they're angry. Just grab the Snickers. They're hungry. And they're angry. And they're probably tired. So you got three of the four. But there's a couple inconsistencies in their story. A couple inconsistencies in their complaints against the Lord. First, they had abysmal recall. I mean, they had abysmal recall. Their children were being tossed into the Nile. Do you recall that in their complaints? No? In, in chapter 1, verse 14, we read that the Egyptians made their service harsh, and it says in 114 that they was bitter with hard service. In chapter 12, verse 8, in the Passover, they were to eat bitter herbs to remind them of the harshness of the reality of their life while they were in Egypt. It's almost like God knew they might forget that it was hard. And they did. Now, all of a sudden, they're claiming life of ease. Biscuits, gravy, filet mignon. What world are you living in? Second, they stated that the entire assembly was hungry. There's no food. We have no food. There's nothing for us to eat here. Now, you may recall in an earlier text that, that they did have food. And recall in later texts, they still have food. It's called livestock. In Chapter 9, verse 6. Remember when then the plague came in and destroyed all the livestock of the Egyptians, but it didn't touch the livestock of the Israelites. In 10:26, when Pharaoh says, who's going to go? He says, well, just these people. And then Moses says, no, we're taking everything, including our livestock. So they had food. But livestock then was also equal to money. We don't want to eat that. That's our money. That's how we're going to plow the ground. That's how we're going to get our milk. That's how we're going to get whatever. We have no food. Uh, looks like you do. But you're not giving, we don't want to use our stuff. Give us something else. A third. They claim that God, through Moses and Aaron, had brought them 
all the ten plagues, freeing them through the Red Sea, the intended plan was to do all this to bring them in the wilderness to kill them. I mean, this is like, that's messed up. <laughs> what? Who comes up with that plan? He's shown you to be mighty and powerful God this entire time, that he's going to execute judgment on all the gods, and the whole world's going to know who he is so he can kill you in the wilderness? Are you serious? So how does the Lord respond to these charges? Verse number four. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. But doesn't seem like David says that. And the people shall go out and gather day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So we've seen the problem now, and here's the solution. God graciously will send these grumblers bread. Speaking of Israel's complaint, their ludicrous charge against the Lord. And God's gracious response, listen to what this one writer said, only the most callous heart or the most stupid mind could conceive of such a ridiculous charge. The only thing more surprising, perhaps, is the response God gives. Rather than punish them, he rains down bread from heaven. If any need convincing of the grace of God in the Old Testament, they need only to look here. Grace, grace, God's grace, he, he pours out his grace. Friend, have you ever received God's grace? What a Savior we have. Even at our worst, he still gives us his best. Israel is full of Grumbling, God is full of grace. And grumbling won't stop here. You'll see it in chapters 16 and 17 at least 10 times in different words or phrases depending on your translation. But before we move on, I'd like to point out one more thing in this verse. Verse number 4, God also gives the reason he will give the bread. Look at the end of verse 4. God says he will send the bread that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. I'll give them the bread, but I want to see if they will obey me and if they will trust me, in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 11, what are we to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. Our daily bread. Just enough for today. Why? Why? Give us this day our daily bread. And God gives his people their daily bread, but when he does so, will they trust him for tomorrow? How will they respond? Will they still follow him in plenty or in lean times? In verses 4 through 12, we see regulations for collecting the bread. They could only get enough for each person, but they're only specifically supposed to get enough that they could eat within a container size. They were supposed to do so days one through six. On day six, they were supposed to collect two times the amount because on day seven, they were supposed to take that day off. Whatever they collect, they are to eat. Do not take more than you need. This is the idea. You need to understand this. Bread's all over the ground. Do not take more than you can eat. In verse 8 through 12, the Lord 8 and 12, the Lord will send meat as well 
so they don't have to use their livestock. The people are taking shots at God's appointed leader, and God says, no, really, you're taking shots at me, and we see as at the end of verse 7 notes that. Yet God, again, is gracious to his people. Because he's not just giving them bread from heaven in verses 7 and 10. We see also he gives them himself and his glory shines in verse 7 and 10. Instead of a backhand to the face, they receive the glorious light of the Lord. The Lord does all this for for his people. Gracious, merciful. What a kind, wonderful God. And he doesn't do it just so he can give them himself, and not just so that their needs could be met, but also that they might know that he is their God. We see that in verse 6 and verse 12, that, that they shall know, here's what I want you to learn from this, that you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Moving on, we see God keeping his word, verse 13 through 15. Verse 13, the meat is delivered, quail is sent, and that comes every night. In the morning, they are given bread from heaven. This bread that we see they eat for 40 years later on. God keeps his word. So how do the people respond to God's solution? Will they trust him? Will they obey him? Will they ask just for their daily bread and they will be good after that? Look at verse 19 through 20. And Moses said to them, Let no one lead any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. It's almost like you can hear a parent talking to a teenager here at this moment. Like, you just couldn't leave it alone. Right? The instructions were extremely clear. But you just had to, right? And then on the conversation goes. You just had to. Get only what you can eat today. Don't take more than what you need. Whatever you're going to take, make sure you eat. Now, by taking more than what they need and trying to keep it for the next day, two actions are seen. Two actions are displayed, I should say, by this action. Two characteristics. First, it's a statement. It's an action against their fellow man, against the rest of the assembly. In 1616, they're told you can take as much as you can eat. Well, can't you see a parent out there? Tabs their container. I got to get food for me, my wife, and and three. And you got a two-year-old and a 15-year-old and a four-year-old. You're like, well, I know what we're going to eat. The 15-year-old is going to have like one and a half. But just in case, make sure we have enough. We're going to get a full adult's worth for the two- and four-year-old. Can you see this happening? And we're going to make sure we have enough, and then we'll store a little bit aside in case our teenager has this, you know, these hunger pains again six minutes after we eat, and, and I'm hungry again. We just had food, and here's some more bread. But what, what's the problem with that? God has given the assembly all the bread they need. For who? For the assembly. How much are you to take? Only what you need. So by bending down and taking more than I need, who am I taking from? The assembly. I'm stealing from them. 
I'm considering my abundance to be more important than their need. So they've cheated their fellow man. God has given their assembly enough, only take what you need. I saw a small picture of this. Does anybody, does anybody watch uh, the old school movie, It's a Wonderful Life? My wife hates that movie. She's like, she gets so nervous the entire way through. She feels so bad for the guy. And I'm like, oh, this is such a great story. Do you remember when there's a bank run? George's getting ready to go on his honeymoon. And his wife pulls out the $2,000, and they're trying to keep everything afloat. And this one guy wants all his money. Does he need it all? No. But where's his money? In his neighbor's home. In his other neighbor's home. I want all my money. So they give of themselves. Then the next person goes, well, I have this amount, and I'll, I'll take 20 be enough for today. And you remember this little old lady comes up afterwards, and she goes, I'll take 1750 And he kisses her and says, God bless you. What does that seem like she wants? And she looks like the poorest of the three that asked for money. This is what I need today. This is it. That's all I need. This is the idea Paul picks up on in 2 Corinthians 8. And we'll get there in a little bit. They've cheated their fellow man. What's more, they dishonor the Lord in this action. What statement does this make to, the God, to God, to their Savior? God, thank you for providing for me today, but I'm not sure you'll do it tomorrow. Let me hold on to what I have now. Well, actually, that's just being a good steward. Isn't there, man, some hard stuff, isn't it? What do we say to the Lord? When we decide we're going to keep this hoard for ourselves. Well, this is just bread. You are absolutely right. But it's a statement nonetheless to the Lord. I don't need you tomorrow. I've planned for tomorrow. I got it. just with finances. How often is our trust truly in the Lord for tomorrow? We got it made in the shade. And sometimes we miss the glorious light of our God who says, I want to be your daily bread. Let me be the one you look to to provide your needs. In 1623, Moses reminds God's people of the Sabbath. Let me rephrase that. God informs his people of the Sabbath because this is the first time that the word Sabbath comes up in the entirety of Scripture. It's possible some may have known of the Sabbath based upon the creation story, but it's the first time we have the word here. Again, the basics of this are collect twice as much on day six and do nothing on day seven. Do they obey? Look at 1627. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather but they found they got twice as much the day before. Twice as much the day before. Is that enough 
No. I need more. Give me more. The Lord said to Moses in 1628, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments? It's in the original Hebrew, it's what's wrong with you people? What is going on? Come on, man. I've given you more than enough. In 1630, it finally clicks. The people rest on the Sabbath. 1631, we get this description of manna. They'll eat it for the next 40 years. In 1632 through 34, we get our first reminder. What is the reminder? In 1632 through 34, they are to take, the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron to take a Tupperware container, take some type of container, fill it with the manna to keep it as a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. Physical reminder, here's this little tin, whatever it is, of manna to remind you, I will provide for you. I will take care of your needs. This is the reminder. That is story one. We'll see stories two and three take place in chapter 17. Let's look at chapter 17, verse number one. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. According to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Here's our first problem. Last time there was no food. Now it's no water. Now they've seen God provide. Surely they'll respond better this time. Look at verse number two. Therefore the people quarreled. Oh boy. With Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Moses asked two poignant questions. What on earth am I supposed to do about that? Why are you, you're picking up the fight with the wrong person. I can't give you water. Why are you testing the Lord? That's the second question. In the last chapter, the Lord tested his people to see, will they be faithful to me? And now the people have flipped this. We're not sure God will be faithful to us. Even though he still, as they're picking up bread <laughs> from their home in the next morning. I'm not sure. I don't think he's going to provide water for us today. Hey, grab some more over there. Oh, sweet mercy. So here we are. They're complaining about the water. The complaints continue. Verse number three, the people thirsted for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children, toss some in, and our livestock, which apparently, again, they still had food, with thirst? Like, oh, again, here we go. Brought us out here to kill us again routine. It's gotten so bad that in verse 4, the people are considering stoning Moses. Church family, listen. If it gets this bad here, you don't like me, just send me on my way before you start picking up stones. Okay, this is a bad, this is a, it's a bad precedent. That's why it's probably we should make sure everything is paved to keep all the stones away. But, I mean, it's a bad situation. You're thinking of killing <laughs> the person God has appointed to lead you. That's not good news. So what's God's solution? What's his solution here? You want to test me, and you want to strike the person that I appointed to lead you with a stone. How about this for a solution? How about I'll take a stone, and I'll give you water from it from the person I've appointed by him striking me? 
You want to kill him with stones? Strike him with stones? Well, I'll let him strike a stone, and that's how you'll get your water. In 17.6, Moses stands for the to- stands before the stone. He strikes it, and water comes out, and the people are given the water that they need. Verse number 7, we see the reminder. Moses will name the place. He will name this place from here on out. It's going to be known as Masa and Meribah. Masa means temptation. Meribah means quarreling, strife, or contention. Now, anytime anybody passes by, they're supposed to know this is Masa and Meribah. This is where we failed. This is where we blew it. Which leads us to our last story. And this one turns a little bit better. First, we see in verse number 8, we see the problem. Then Amalek came out and fought with Israel at Rephidim. There's our problem. What's the solution? Let's fight. But Moses stresses that he will do so with the Lord's staff in his hand. And, and we know this story. You remember the story from Sunday school. If you've been in Sunday school any length of time, Moses holds up the staff above his head, and his arms start getting tired and weary, and then they start coming down, and Aaron and her rush in. It's just a reminder. When the Lord fought for them, who needed to help him? When Moses is the one leading them, he needs help. It's a helpful reminder to you and I, friend. There's no mavericks in this Christian life. We need help. Praise God for those that come alongside and help us in those times. So Aaron and her, they, they raise up their arms. As long as their arms are up, good things happen. God grants Israel a victory. In verse 14, we're given a reminder. God instructs Moses to write down this story and that God will wipe out the people of Amalek. Because they have attacked his people. So what do these stories mean for us today? First, friend, earlier in chapter 16. We looked at how the people grumbled and complained. How the Lord responded to them in grace. Have you ever, have you ever met this God of grace? Do you know him? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Friend, do you know him as your Savior? You can know him by admitting that you are a sinner like, like I am. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He really did come. He really did die. He really did rise. He did ascend on high, and he still lives today to intercede on behalf of his own. Will you call on the name of the Lord? Ask him to save you. If you have questions how you can do that, see myself, see a Christian friend you came with. We'd love to walk you through that. Second, for all those claiming to be a Christian, we're going to spend a little bit longer time than we normally do in our conclusion here. But Christian, how is your grumbling? How's your complaints? Christian teen? Child? Is that about all mom and dad hear from you anymore? Is complaints? Grumble? Whine? Mom and dad, is that all the kids hear from you about work? Grumbling? Complaints about politics. That's all. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the land. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Or complain and grumble. What are you known for? Next, how is your hoarding? You keeping, and I'm not talking about. How many newspapers or pinball machines you may have at the house? Let me make a different connection. Turn with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
the Sandy read this for us today. We're not going to read it all. But I want to challenge you and challenge your thinking in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 13 through 15. Let me read these for you. Paul's speaking to the church of Corinth. He's going to talk about, we assume, the church of Philippi and how they, though they were poor, they've given out of their abundance. And you have this church in Corinth that is a well-to-do church, and it's like they, they won't give. They won't give. And Paul's in, encouraging them to give. And he says in verse 13, For I do not mean that others should be eased, and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs, so that their abundance may supply your needs, so that there may be fairness. Again, Paul's speaking of, of finances. You have extra, and, and you can give it. Now, now, wait a second, Paul. I mean, can't you hear the financial advisors out here? Dave Ramsey told me, and I remember the one time when I heard, and there's this financial guy that said, I'm supposed to, so I, I, got, all, I got the storehouses built up. What are you talking about? Where do you get this crackpot theory? I have a great spot that you could go to to learn this lesson. And in verse 15, Paul will quote Exodus 16, 18. In Exodus 16, 18, the people had walked around and gathered all the bread that they needed. And he says in Exodus 16, 18, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. God had given the assembly all that they needed. And if everybody just picks up what they need for today, we will all have enough. Well, is this Christian socialism? Is this, where, where do you see this? Is this like in... In Acts, like, you know, is, is there any story where people did this? Like where they just decided we're going to start selling our second houses and selling all this stuff and, and giving to the Lord? Yes, there, are, there actually is stories about that. So are you saying it's wrong to? I didn't say that. Well, what are you saying? Uh, I'm saying what the Lord put in Scripture in verse 15. That's all I'm saying. That whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. What was the point of the manna? Right? If anybody's studying the Bible, if you see a quote from the Old Testament, you have to go back to the original context. So in the context in which it was written to the people of Exodus, how would they have understood manna? Why were they not supposed to hoard for tomorrow? Who was their trust supposed to be in alone? I will trust God for all I need today. He is enough. Paul says, that, that's the idea. That's what I want you to understand. And that's what it seems like the early church did understand. Now you can go to Proverbs you can give me illustrations about an ant. You can. And you can talk about sound advice. Christian, look at me. Christian, 
uh, church member, family, friend. I'm not telling you what to do with your money. But I want you to feel as uneasy as I do about mine when I read these verses. We should be asking ourselves some hard questions. Am I trusting God the way he's asked me to? When I say, give me this day my daily bread, and then I look at my storehouse going, do I really need him for tomorrow? Do I? When's the last time I had to depend upon him by faith financially? When's the last time? Remember how the people got their daily bread and he gave it to them. What were they, redu- what were they to do with the rest? So imagine instead of bread being on the ground, it's dollar bills. Lord gives you a container and says, get what you need for today. What about the rest? Get what you need for today. Wait, wait. So my working so that others could become, I'm supposed to work and get rich so, and give my riches away to the poor so that they could be rich and then I'm left in poverty? I don't know. Let me read to you verse 9 of chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for whose sake? Your sake. He became poor. Why? So that through his poverty, you might become rich. I don't like where this is going. just like turning a knife inside my heart going, Lord, this is money stinks. You know, nobody likes to talk about money. You don't want to talk about your money out loud. I don't want to talk about your money out loud. I don't want to talk about mine. But if I'm just reading the text and being honest with it and putting away every other argument I've heard outside of Scripture, here's a good challenge for you and I. Would you at least read through the text today and say, Lord, what would you have me do based upon what I'm learning here? What would you have me do? Is there something maybe I should change? Because I want you to be my daily bread. That's all. Let's start there. But I thank you for being honest. There, there are churches without walls. There are churches without buildings. We're sitting in relative ease. Once a month, we have meat pots full. We got bread to the fill. And you're able to take the third piece of chicken. Christian, we are in abundance. By God's grace, by faith, might he work in our hearts so that we would give sacrificially, give graciously, so that we might know the Lord to be our daily bread. However, however the Spirit would move you to do that, obey. That's all. However the Spirit would move you, obey. Let's start there. Give us our daily bread.
bread. Next, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, you can look right over there, whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. Whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. So when we give, how are we to give? Chapter 9, verse 7 says, God loves a cheerful giver. Will you give by faith cheerfully to the Lord? Third and final, how will you praise God based on what you've learned about who he is and what he's done for us? How will you praise him this week? He's glorious. He is gracious. He's our provider. He's our sustainer. He's Jehovah Nisi. He's our banner. This banner is, is this, it's this rallying point for the army. It's this war cry. It's You've been in a college football stadium, and what's one of the first things that comes out of the tunnel besides people? You'll see a flag typically comes out. They score, and somebody, the flag's going to go around somewhere, but it's reminding people, this is our rallying cry. The Lord is our rallying cry. There's a lot of things we can learn about the Lord from this text, but I'd like to add a, a couple more. If you're in 2 Corinthians 4, flip over to Matthew chapter 4. You know, typically we don't, we're not doing this a lot, but we need to do it. Because the text in Exodus 16 and 17 is used elsewhere in the New Testament. And these aren't the only spots. So in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. We've already gone through this if you've been here the last couple months. We talked about how Jesus is the perfect son of God. He is what Israel was not. They went into the wilderness. Jesus went into the wilderness. They were tempted. He was tempted. Jesus, having fasted 40 days, finds himself to be hungry. Just like the people were hungry. Satan tempts him to turn the stones into what? Bread. Just turn the stones into bread. You're hungry. You're in the wilderness. You're starving. What does Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus learned the lesson the people of Israel did not. So Satan will go for number two. He tries to tempt Jesus again. And Jesus says in Matthew 4, 7, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So in the first failing of the people of Israel in Exodus 16, they failed with the bread. In the second failing with the water, they put the Lord to the test. Moses in Deuteronomy, recalling all this, will look back at Exodus 16 and 17 and say, this is where you failed. And you failed with the bread because you were supposed to learn that man does not live by bread alone, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you failed with the water and you put the Lord to your test. You're not supposed to be putting the Lord your God to the test. And we'll see the third and final thing that Jesus will go through, and he will quote, which will deal with the golden calf, which we'll get to later on in Exodus. But in each one of these ways, Jesus has proved himself to be the perfect Son of God. And for this, we give him praise. However, there's even more. Because in John, in John 6, 51, Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. That's what I am. You know that stuff that came down and the Lord allowed it, fed the people and sustained the people their entire time in the wilderness? That's me. I am what sustains you. I am your daily bread. I am what will sustain you for the rest of your life. I am the bread from heaven. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Paul says that Jesus was the rock that they got water from. Which led, John picks this up in John 6, 35, when he quotes Jesus, 
Jesus in John 6, 85 says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He speaks with the woman at the well. The water that I give will give you life everlasting. You drink of this water, you will never thirst. He is the bread. He is the water. And there's more. And more we could go on. There's so many pictures from Exodus 15 and 17 that find its way through Scripture. There's so much that's in the text. It's almost like he had a plan. And he's just executing it to perfection. This is how you are to live. I've shown you a physical picture of how this looks. Physical representation of a spiritual reality. Christian, trust me to be your bread. Not just financially, spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally. Let me be your sustenance. Let me be the thing that quenches your thirst. Let me be the thing that you run to for all your needs. Come to me. What a God. Praise God for being the perfect son, for being our banner, our rally cry, for being glorious, for being our provider and our sustainer. Praise him. Follow him. Place your faith daily in him. Lord, allow me by faith to live today as if you are all I need. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Jesus, help us. Help me. There's so much in this text that, Lord, it's humbling. There's so much in this text that, oh, it's hard. It's just, there's something that's just hard, Lord. Honestly, it's hard. We don't like talking about finance. Lord, all we've heard and all that we've, we've thought that we ought to be doing, I pray that whatever anybody in this church decides to do with their finances, may it be based on the entirety of Scripture, not a verse taken out of context. So Lord, would you allow our church and the people at our church to give sacrificially? Would you allow our church and the people in our church to see you to be enough that you would be our daily bread, that we would trust in you for tomorrow? Would you help us not just when it comes to finances, you help us in our attitude. But we can grumble and complain, moan, quarrel over things of no importance. Would you help us to have, as this type of season, the end of Thanksgiving, would tell us to have an attitude of gratitude. We would see that our God is still worthy of it all, even through the toughest of times. Lord, lastly, we want to thank you for sending your son, the bread from heaven, the eternal water that makes it so we never thirst. Lord, help us to trust in you and praise you for being the great God that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.